This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Okay, so um, we'll have a a talk and a discussion today and tomorrow about uh, the the three pillars of of, of Zen, as in the, the precepts, samadhi and wisdom. And so um, the handout, there's many, many different variations of the wording in English of the, of the 16 precepts. Uh, this wording that I've given to you is from the, uh, um, primarily I think from the um, uh, Elihu Gemio Smith's uh, book. Um, Elihu is a, was the first Dharma successor of Joko Beck. And he was also a personal assistant to Maizumi Roshi for many years. And um, so it's, one, it's been one of the uh, longest standing uh, ordinary mind teachers. And um, if, you, if, and if you don't have this book, Everything is the Way, it's a collection of talks. And it's also got a great um, section at the end on... Um, um, the Jukai ceremony, the three treasures and the three precepts, the three pure precepts. <clears throat> this is a quote from um, Jan Chosen Bays, um, a Zen teacher in the United States. The precepts that we are given at our Jukai ceremony consist of the three treasures the three pure precepts, and then the ten grave precepts, sixteen altogether. The first thing that we do after chanting the Gatha of Atwanment in the Jukai ceremony is to take the three treasures. The three treasures in the Jukai ceremony are expressed in this way, being one with the Buddha, being one with the Dharma, being one with the Sangha. Um, if I had, if I was doing a, a precepts group again, and we may do one sometime in the future, um, in retrospect, I would have emphasised a lot more the the three treasures and the three pure precepts, uh, because there are sixteen precepts altogether, and uh, in the precepts group, we tended to focus on the the, the, the ten grave precepts or the ten applied precepts. And um, <clears throat> because, I mean, that's where the, the rubber hits the road in a sense in which the, with the applied precepts that's focusing on what comes up in our everyday lives. Um, and, um, but to really 
to really get a good understanding of the precepts and how to apply them in our everyday lives. We really need to get an understanding of the three treasures uh, because the three treasures are the context for all the precepts. And in a way, the, uh, the three pure precepts are kind of like, the three pure precepts are kind of like about um, not doing any harm, doing good, serving all existence. There's three of them and they're they're worded differently, but basically, do no harm, do good, serve. Um, And um, in some ways, you you can see how those, those three pure precepts are basically something we can draw upon when we find ourselves in the dilemma of everyday life kinds. But the three treasures, um, they point to what's known as the, the intrinsic or essential aspect of precept practice. Um, so like you know, Reese was mentioning yesterday, <coughs> um, the, the, there's, there's a literal dimension to the precepts. The, the precepts as are prohibitions. And uh, we don't normally... <clears throat> that's not really part of Zen practice. That's, uh, so the other two perspectives on, on, on the precepts, what's sometimes called the Mahayana perspective or the subjective perspective or the compassionate perspective, which is about realising that nothing's black and white and sometimes maybe in some situations it might be best not to tell the truth and so on. And so that's how we draw upon our spontaneous compassion from the pure precepts to respond to these situations of everyday life. The Three treasures, um, as we were touching on in, in both the sutras today, with the heart of the heart wisdom, heart sutra, that's a wisdom teaching, uh, and in the guided meditation this morning. The it's so important in Zen to get some understanding of that. Um, in other words recognition, realisation, or even the word enlightenment. Um, uh, they're, they're important, um, obviously, dimensions of Zen Buddhist practice. And uh, we can, even if you want to get an, a theoretical understanding, that's fine, but an experiential glimpse and getting more experiential glimpses into the essential uh, is very, very important. Um, So as we were doing the guided meditation this morning, um, Buddha is kind of like in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha of the three treasures. So Buddha is the essential nature, that's the oneness, the undifferentiated of of everything. Um, And it's when we uh, take the backward step and uh, see 
clearly that we can't actually, you know, grasp that in any way. So, because it's not a thing, it's not an object. So the Buddha mind is often referred to as the unborn and the undying, because it's not something that is ever, never arises and it never passes away. So, in essence, it's ungraspable, and it's even impossible to put words to it, really. But of course we do, well, Buddha. But if you see the Buddha on the road, you know. Um, um, it's obviously non-conceptual, and uh, that's why it's sometimes referred to as unconditioned uh, awareness. It's not a thing. Uh, and it's who we are. This is paradoxical. Dharma, the second treasure, is the kind of manifestation of all the infinite variety of forms. So, experience of all the phenomena, Dharma can be experienced. We're experiencing it all the time and it's constantly changing. So everything that we experience, sensations, perceptions, thoughts, memories, feelings, that's the constant shifting of all these countless dharmas, infinite number of dharmas. And then Sangha, the third part of the three treasures, is the harmonization of the Buddha and Dharma. It's seeing how Buddha and Dharma are identical. That's the form is boundlessness, boundlessness form, or emptiness is form, form is emptiness. And Dharma is kind of like where it Sorry, Sangha is where we, it, it comes together, where we integrate that understanding into our everyday lives. So Sangha, obviously, yeah, it means this Sangha, uh, and, it, and it means relationships everywhere, and, and, but it also is on this kind of Three treasures. It's the it's the coming together of the unity of one, the one and the many, and then how we express it. That unity is kind of like sangha. It's kind of like how we live that, how we express that in our everyday lives. Because you know. Um, Many of us grew, grew up on um, enlightenment stories. Um, we tended to get the impression that enlightenment was some kind of special experience. And um, in my view, in my opinion, I you know that's not the case. Um, no, you will find divergences of opinion in all the various Buddhist teachings and schools and non-Buddhist teachings and schools. Um, 
about what enlightenment means. Um, but essentially, uh, from my perspective, at least, uh, there, there, there is, you know, nobody, there's nobody who becomes enlightened because there's no person to begin with in the first place. Um, from the perspective of Buddha, the essential, there are, there are no, there is no separation at all within the universe. Everything is an indivisible oneness. On the experiential level, we touch that, we glimpse that and, and get established in that through meditation is one of the vehicles we do that. But that's when we come into the realization of being awareness or being consciousness and the realization that the dharmas, the phenomena, the many, everything which, which is differentiated is inseparable from consciousness or awareness. And that the way in which conventional reality works is that it all gets projected onto that screen, in a sense, where we have this dream-like world in which we dream that I'm Andrew Tutel, and I'm relating to Rebecca as being two separate individuals. But it's all a dream happening within the same mind, the same consciousness, only we're caught in that dream. And we don't realize it. We act in the dream as if there is a separate, that we have a separate mind. And it's the separation which breeds the, the conflict and which breeds the wars, brings the suffering about, which is founded on the, the root of ignorance. So from my perspective, enlightenment is simply the, the gradual realization that we're not that dream, we're not that projection. And that kind of starts with glimpses. And I see it as being a very gradual process, a deepening process. It can sometimes be the case and, uh, that people do have what you might describe as peak experiences or mystical experiences. Uh, where they have uh, a sudden awakening, if you like, to this non-separation. And um, there's a lot of, often a lot of joy involved in that because realising that non-separation is realising that basically the whole universe is really undivided, indivisible love. There is nothing separate. So it's like a total dropping away of all fear. Total sense of completeness, that nothing is missing. But they are very, very colourful experiences, but they actually are experiences which appear in awareness itself. Awareness itself is, is not that experience. The experience of, of that kind of joy is, is, is appearing, 
It's almost like it's like a dharma that's appearing in awareness, which is um, also empty. But they can be very encouraging experiences. So, like if you have them, oh, that's great. Um, but we don't need to pursue them. You don't need to pursue those kinds of experiences. To you don't have to feel you're missing out on something if you're not having those experiences. The kind of deep peace and happiness which comes from the realization of non-separation. Um, in my experience, it's just, it's just more of a, a very gentle presence. And there is a gradual lessening of, of, of fear. And as we become more samadhi of awareness, as we become more one with awareness, for example, the fear of death starts to dissipate. There is a genuine, definite sense of this, what I am, has always been here and it's not going to go away. This body will change. This brain will change. But who I am essentially won't. But that kind of realisation is available to everybody. It doesn't need to be seen as being some... You don't have to go to a a cave in the mountains to have that kind of realisation. The simplicity of ordinary mind. One of the reasons why we use ordinary mind is its very ordinariness. And it's because of its very ordinariness that it gets missed. It, 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 it gets totally taken for granted. And we get drawn into the the, the contents of awareness, the drama of, 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 of and uh, which can also end up in some terrible consequences. So that insight into the essential nature of Buddha is essential in precepts work, because if we don't have that, see that clearly, then there is the possibility that we could feel a sense of guilt or a sense of despair in our ability to make a difference in the world. So when you start to view the the precepts from the aspect of um, essential nature, from emptiness, takes on a different feeling. So, and it's really important to get this. So, let's say, for example, we see the precepts as expressions of the universal way. They're manifestations of the universal way. They're manifestations of love. 
So non-killing, the first and probably most important precept, which really contains all of them, seen from this perspective is simply the expression of or the recognition of our essential nature as not being separate. I am not separate from all that is. When you have a realization of non-separation, there cannot be any killing of anything because there's nothing separate to be killed or kill or be or be the killer. There is no killer and killed. Same with non-stealing. If you see it from the perspective of the essential, it's an expression of no lack. There's nothing missing. Everything is complete. Why would one want to steal anything? You're just stealing from yourself. Mm. We could go on, like, so not misusing sexuality could be seen as being the expression of being at ease in our bodies and minds with sexual needs. Not telling lies could be the expression of being one with the truth of this moment. And like not in, indulging in self-centered anger could be seen as being the expression of the peace that we are, the happiness that we are. So seen in that way, the precepts are expressions of who we are already. Um, now nobody as far as I know is what you might describe as complete and fully enlightened um, they'd be a pretty amazing being if they were and maybe there have been such beings um, um, you know like Joko says in one of her talks like if if, if one was completely a fully enlightened, then one wouldn't have a problem with anything. You know, you're going to lose your arm, that's okay. Um, so the, the, that's kind of like this notion of complete enlightenment, like an ideal or an archetype. What we are about as practitioners and human beings is basically through our practice, through seeing who we are, starting to no longer get caught in that, in that self-centered dream. And by doing that, the, the frequency and duration of actions through our conduct, speech or thought reduces and gets less frequent. We have become more accepting of ourselves and others. We become less fearful and more loving. And it's a gradual process of maturation and development which just continues for the rest of our life. It's the, the integration of this work. Healing ourselves, that's where the, the, the healing process starts to kick in. The process of healing, sort of like captured in our precepts, is, not holding on, uh, letting go, forgiving ourselves and others, and being just this moment, no longer pushing stuff away, 
but embracing each moment, no matter what's coming up in our awareness or consciousness. And that's the process of healing. So you can see the precepts from this perspective as being about this gradual transition, as I said at the beginning, from fear to love, from separation to non-separation, from exclusion to inclusivity, and so on. <clears throat> so I'll just finish with a quote from Elihu's book. Taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha is taking refuge in Buddha's awakening. In the Transmission of Light, which is a collection of enlightenment stories, Kaizen Zenji says, this so-called I is not Shakyamuni Buddha, Even Shakyamuni Buddha is born of this I. Certainly you, I, all beings are born of this I. The whole of the great earth and all beings come forth from it as well. Attaining the way is seeing and realizing this. It is seeing that from the beginning we are all nothing, nothing, but this unborn Buddha mind. What is this? Making this unborn Buddha mind clear for ourselves and for others is the core of our life practice. This is taking refuge in the Buddha, the first of the three treasures, the first of the three jewels. So I urge you all to realize the true Buddha mind, the I that we all are.